0: Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 74. The NBA draft last night. The Bucks did move up. Didn't have to trade a big chip to move up, but they do. They draft two guys. Also, big news, Chris Middleton opting out of the $40 million player option. That was expected. NBA movement all week. Chris stops Porzingis in Boston. Chris Paul is going to Golden State. Brewers embark on what could be maybe a make-or-break 10-game road trip starting tonight. They end the homestand 4-2 after a loss on Wednesday. We'll talk about Julio Tehran, what they could maybe do to jumpstart this offense, which is still just stuck in mud like it has been the past three years. We'll talk PGA because we've had so much success betting on the majors. Of course, we are dipping our toes into the every weekend tournaments. Now we've got some skin in the game for the travelers championship. We'll also break down Aaron Rodgers speaking at a hallucinogenic conference. And I've got a question about IVs and how many people are using them to combat and cure hangovers. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here, Durham, to Hardy, to first, In time, Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin! Record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, face it center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw on the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws! Complete complete. It and there is your Super Bowl Dagger! Booker the drive, gets inside, leans in, backed away and stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle foul, throws it down! Swinging fly. we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, so Summerfest is underway, and it's now a three-weekend format. That was something I thought would stick around. That's one of those post-pandemic things that I thought that might stick when they made that adjustment after 2020, going to the three-weekend format Thursday through Saturday instead of the 10 and 11 days or whatever. They had Eric Church there last night. I did not go, but I had, I guess it wouldn't be FOMO, right? FOMO is before fear of missing out, right? That's what it is. That happens before an event and then makes you go because you don't want to miss out. What is post FOMO? Is there a word for that or an acronym for that? But I love church. I've seen him many times. I've always had a good time going to church shows. He was headlining the opening night of Summerfest last night at the amphitheater, but it was a Thursday, and I'm getting to that age now where it's got to be a really special artist if I'm going to go see somebody in the middle of a week and then try to bounce back. Tuesday would be the worst day. That would be the worst day to go see a show and then have to try to bounce back Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and keep moving. It would take an elite artist to get me out to a concert on a Tuesday night. i have to go see Prince. Prince would be the only artist I'd see on a Tuesday at this point in my life. But I did have that moment last night where all the B93 Facebook listeners or followers and all the B93 Instagram people were updating their stories at the show and the sound was pretty good and just seeing the stage and people kicking back cold drinks. I had whatever post FOMO is. But then tonight, Zach Brown Band is headlining. Now, our afternoon guy on B93, Matthew J., Him and his wife love Zach Brown Band. They travel all over the country going to see Zach Brown Band. They actually were in Cincinnati when the Brewers were in Cincinnati for that ALS night because one of Zach Brown Band's members, I believe their bassist, has ALS, and he's still performing right now. But they had that gigantic ALS fundraiser a couple of Fridays ago. Brewers played in Cincy, and Zach Brown Band played after that, an extra innings win for the Brewers that, that day. But he is going to see them tonight. And we were just talking in the studio yesterday, and he said, are you going to church? I said, no. And I said, I'm sure you're going to Zach tomorrow. He said, yeah, we're going to get down to Milwaukee. We're going to go get an IV, and then we're going to hit the grounds at about 3 or 4 o'clock. And I had a very George Costanza back it up, beep, beep, beep situation when he just casually said we're going to get an IV. I had one of these. Oh, Back it up. Back it up. Beep, beep, beep. (laughs) Beep, beep, beep. (laughs) I said, you're going to get an IV? What does that even mean? He said, yeah, we do do it all the time. If we are going to a show or we know we're going to be partying late and really giving her, we always go to get an IV. I said, what does that mean? An IV like at the hospital, you go to get an IV? Now, I have heard of people who have gone way overboard partying and you end up in the hospital getting an IV. That is not a situation you want to be in. Official statement from the Strange Brew podcast. Not a situation you want to be in. Do not do that. But I have heard of that. I have not heard of these types of IVs. He said they've been doing it for a few years. And he said there's one in Plymouth now, in Plymouth, Wisconsin, right? 15 minutes west of our broadcast location here. And he first learned about them in Milwaukee before whatever concert they were going to. There's a couple of different spots in Milwaukee. And they're not cheap. I said, what is in this? Because what you're saying to me sounds a little bit like drugs, if I'm going to be totally honest. Most of what I know about drugs comes from the wire. So I don't know a ton. But it sounds like they're hooking you up to an IV and you feel great afterwards. That sounds like drugs to me. He said, yeah, you make an appointment, you go down, and they it's a big old bag of fluids. He did pull up the website of the place that he's going today in Milwaukee to get this. And it does have an ingredient list. A lot of it's hydration. As I kind of expected, a lot of it is just vitamins, vitamin B6 and vitamin B12 and all that kind of stuff to give you a jolt. So I said... How much better do you feel if you just give me regular Matt after a decent night's sleep, whatever that is these days, after a regular night's sleep, and you're in the middle of the week and you're just doing your thing and you're not going overboard for anything, not overeating, not overdrinking, whatever. How much better do you feel percentage-wise after an IV? He said 25%. That's a large percentage. And he said if he's hungover... 50% better. In fact, they do them now almost as a preventative measure. I would think a lot of people do use those after the fact. If you're really hungover and you just can't get over it, maybe you pay the price to do one of these IVs. He said they go before to prevent it. I said, so you're not going to get a hangover no matter how hard you go at Zach Brown Band tomorrow. You will not have a hangover. He said very little or none at all. And then immediately you feel 25 to 30% better than you regularly do. I think I've got to try this. I might want to get one installed. I may just get the IV installed here at the B93 studios at Strange Brew International HQ. I may just have this drip ready to go at any point. I have not heard of this. Has anybody out there heard of getting an IV before or after a show. We talked about it on the air this morning, and we did have a couple people call in, which is rare in radio these days. Several people texting in, but we actually had some callers that said they abide by it. It's legit. Somebody texted and said they have not tried it, but they have seen them the last time they were in Nashville for a show. They saw advertisements for them everywhere. If this is becoming popular, I would imagine the party cities, Nashville and Las Vegas and Fond du Lac and all those big party spots, they probably have those. Just there because they know people are coming to eat and drink and see shows and whatever. Do whatever you're gonna do. But I've never heard of that until he just casually brought it up. I envisioned this is an underrated Jonah Hill movie. There are several overrated Jonah Hill movies, but the movie Get Him to the Greek, I envisioned that scene where Russell Brand's character hits him with an adrenaline shot. Just goes rampaging through people. That's what I envision happening. One of the Undertaker gifts where he just sits up. But well, he swears by it. Matt said they swear by it. If they know that they are really going to be getting after it one night, it makes them feel better before and it helps prevent a hangover after. They are over $100 a piece. So I'd really have to believe in it. I will say I do love a good emergency packet. I've been on record many times as saying that I will use emergency, those vitamin C packets that give you some absurd amount of vitamin C, 20,000% of what your daily value is supposed to be. I don't always just use those when I'm sick. If I've got a big run coming up, I did the half marathon in Madison last year. I had three donuts and did at least one line. I just do lines of them. I don't even mix them with water anymore. Just, Just straight lines. But I had one or two packets of emergency. Emergency does give you a very temporary boost of energy. For that reason, I do take them. I guess the same principle applies. I wouldn't say I feel 25% better, though. Maybe 5% better. At most, 10% better after a couple of emergency packets. But I'm guessing the same logic applies to whatever these vitamin hydration IV bags are. I may have to give it a shot. 25 is a lot. (laughs) Maybe when I was younger, I I wouldn't have batted an eye at that, but... As I'm getting a little bit older, I know I'm not old, but as I'm getting a little bit older and things aren't working the way that they used to and if I sleep awkwardly, my neck hurts for 48 hours, things like that. Hey, what'd you do to your shoulder, John? Did you throw it out playing baseball over the weekend? No, I just slept on it weird. (laughs) It's just been bad for two weeks. As that is happening more and more and more, a 25% boost to what you feel like normally Feels like it would be pretty good, but I also have an addictive personality, so I'm worried about what would happen if it does make me feel really good. It's not cheap. IVs. All right. All right, the NBA draft last night, as we talked about on the podcast on Monday, the Bucs do trade up, and they trade one of those second-round picks, which we've talked about on this podcast, and I've talked about it on the air many times. Second-round picks in the NBA are nothing. I have three second-round picks in the NBA. Everybody has them. They're like shrewd bucks. You can just print them off. It's fake currency. Everybody has a million second-round picks. John Horst legitimately traded four second-round picks for Jake Crowder. It didn't work out, but nobody cares because they're second-round picks. And you can just you can ima- you can force them. You can uh, you can use the force power to bring yourself more second-round picks. They trade a twenty thirty second-round pick to move up to number thirty-six, and they draft Andre Jackson Jr. from UConn. Three years at UConn, two years as a starter. They, of course, won the national title last year. He is not a scorer, not a very good shooter, just over 40% in college. Sometimes those college stats you can throw out, but shooting percentages you do kind of keep an eye on because normally if you're a really good college shooter, at least the first couple years you're in the NBA where you are trying to play offense against much more athletic defenders and aggressive defenders, you see those dip. So when you're already at 40% or a little less than 40%, you don't love how that may translate to the NBA level. But what his attributes circle around are defense. He is six foot seven. he is long, and he was one of the best wing defenders that UConn had last year. And he profiles as a very good wing defender in the NBA. Now, what issue did the Bucks have in their first round matchup with Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat? Needing more wing defenders to throw at them because Drew Holiday did his best in that series and got torched and he then got dragged on social media. He did a podcast. I think we played a part of it a few weeks ago where he basically said there was nothing anybody his size could do against Jimmy or he felt like nobody could defend Jimmy the way he played in that series the way he played like prime Kobe or prime Jordan. I would imagine somebody with a little more length. Most Bucks fans wanted the switch to Giannis. They wanted a longer guy on Jimmy, even though he doesn't have the lateral speed that Drew does. Maybe his length would have disrupted what Jimmy Butler was trying to accomplish offensively with that mid-range game and shooting threes. Maybe Giannis's length would have undermined that a bit more than Drew's did. But with Drew's size... He did the best he could against a guy who was absolutely going nuclear. And like we said, prime Kobe, prime MJ, whoever you want to throw on it. That's what he was doing in that series. But the Bucks needed more athletic wings that they could throw at him. And this could be a guy. You know who Andre Jackson Jr. profiles as to me? This is going to be a deep cut reference for the Bucs fans out there. I'm going to make sure. I'm going to see how many years he played in the league. I don't know if I can get it up. His scouting report reminds me very much of 2008, I want to say, when the Bucks drafted the Prince, Luke Richard Mbamute Mbaamute. Bamute. And his thing was the exact same thing that Andre Jackson's is. He was a pure defender. His scouting report said he's long, he's an excellent on-ball defender, great wing defender, cannot score, is not a scorer. And Mute was a UCLA product. I swear to you, if you pulled up his scouting report in 2007 or 2008 or whatever year it was, it probably reads almost exactly like the scouting report we saw on Andre Jackson Jr. And if that's how this ends up, good. Bob Mute had several good years in Milwaukee. His offensive game developed a little bit. He did get a bit of that baseline jumper mid-range. He was all right there. He could slash to the lane. He was never a good three-point shooter. He never would have survived in today's NBA. I think his career ended pretty much as the explosion of shooting threes, and not just any threes, 35, 40-foot threes sometimes. The Steph Curry-type threes. When the game evolved into that, I don't know how valuable Mute was after that, but he played several years after he left Milwaukee. And if that's the kind of player the Bucks are getting, that is precisely what they need. You hope they have enough offense as is, or maybe they tweak things here and there still. But to have a lockdown wing defender at that size with that length, if he does profile as a Mute type player, this could be a win. Now, I don't know how many minutes a second-round pick is going to get in his rookie year. Mute on bad teams, he played probably 15, 20 minutes a night. I don't know if that's going to be the case on a title contending team, but if his defense can translate right away, he's a guy who could see some run for this team if he can defend the way that he defended at the college level. The Bucks also do keep that final pick of the draft. This was an interesting situation. They get Chris Livingston from Kentucky with the 58th pick. He was all SEC freshman team last year. Not much you can glean from his stats. He averaged six and a half points a game, a couple of rebounds a game. And he only played the one year. There's not a whole lot to know there. He's a project, like we talked about on Monday's podcast. At the 58th overall pick, the last pick of the draft, you are not going to get an impact player. You are going to get a project. What was interesting was the Bucs really were enamored with him, apparently, during the process leading up to the draft. Chris Livingston's agent... Once the draft got into the mid-40s and the Bucs got him at 58, there must have been some behind-the-scenes promise from the Bucs to Livingston that we are going to draft you at 58, and that's where he wanted to go. And his agent started telling teams, don't take him. They actually pulled him out of the final draft workouts, and then during the course of the night last night, his agent, you never hear this. His agent was actively telling teams, do not pick Chris Livingston. He basically already has a team. I don't know how legal that is from a draft perspective to already have the agreement in place before you're even picked. I'm surprised somebody out there, if I had the 57th overall pick and I heard about that, I'd take him out of spite. But nobody did. And he ends up becoming the 58th pick, Chris Livingston, the final pick of the draft. It was just a weird side note to the final pick of the draft, Mr. Irrelevant NBA style. Not that tons of people care about that last guy getting picked, but that part of the storyline made it sort of interesting that his agent was going on telling people, do not take him. The Bucks also get a couple of people on two-way contracts after the fact. The most interesting that they get is a guy, I'm pretty sure he won NCAA Player of the Year two years ago. They get Gonzaga forward Drew Timmy, which I just cannot. I know this is probably not something. Timmy! I, yeah. right? You're Timmy. Timmy. Timmy, I can't believe that South Park got away with that. But anytime I hear Drew Timmy's name, that's the first thing I think of. A uh, Drew Timmy. Was he the national player of the year? Drew Timmy, player of the year. He was so good in college, but you kind of knew his entire time. He averaged 22 points a game last year. I don't think he was the player of the year. He was nominated for the player of the year. He was the West Coast Conference player of the year three years in a row, or two years in a row, All-American, a guy who averaged 20-plus points his final three years at Gonzaga, almost got Gonzaga to a title on a couple of separate occasions, but for whatever reason, maybe his size or the way he's built, it just never seemed like he was a guy that somebody was going to go after as a lottery pick or even a first-round pick, and he doesn't even go in the second round, but... I'm intrigued. He's a guy who's won. You've heard this story a lot of these really good college players. For whatever reason, they don't profile well to the NBA. Somebody like the Bucks sign him on a two-way deal or whatever they called the contract. The contract had a very weird, weird sound to it. What do they call it? I'd never heard it before I had to Google it. It's an Exhibit 10 contract. The glory that is the Exhibit 10 contract. I guess that means he's a one-year minimum deal right now, and then they have a deadline they have to get to where they could turn it into a two-way contract where he could shuttle back and forth from the Bucks to the Herd back and forth as many times as they want if they think that that's something they can utilize for Drew Timmy. He's got size, kind of. I don't know. I don't know how his game is going to profile in the NBA. It may not. But there are those guys that they just dominate college, and then for whatever reason, their game, their style maybe a lack of athleticism, I don't know, it just does not work in the NBA and they either go drafted later they go completely undrafted. But I don't really know that I have a problem with getting a very low risk, high reward situation on a guy who's a proven winner, a proven score at the college level and he's 25 or no, he's 23 years old. I don't know. I think it's worth It's worth a gamble to see if he can work on his game or craft his game or adapt it a little bit to the NBA style. If They can coach him up in training camp. I would imagine he's going to see a lot of run in rookie league. Give him a lot of minutes in those Vegas rookie league games. It feels worth it to me to take a gamble, to take a toss, and see what happens. But Drew Timmy signed at the end of the draft as well. The other big Bucks news was Middleton opting out of his $40 million a year option for the upcoming year. We talked about this on Monday. This was completely expected. That did not stop old people on Facebook from having some of the worst takes I've ever read (laughs) on every local Milwaukee media outlet on their news pages, TMJ4, Fox 6, Channel 58, Journal Sentinel. They don't just put those kinds of stories only on their sports Facebook pages. They put them on the general news page because it is kind of big news. The Bucs are the local team, and they're a title contender, and Middleton's a pretty big name. The comments on those general news story sections were just a disaster. They cooked up some of the worst takes. The takes that were in those comment sections were like those TV dinners in the 80s and 90s before that had been perfected. And you would put something in the microwave oven, and you'd take it out Three minutes later, you'd follow the instructions perfectly, and then half of it would be scorched and flavorless. The other half would still be ice cold and basically be an ice cube. That that was the level of the cooking we saw on the takes on the Chris Middleton story. Just total Total casual NBA fans having no clue how important Middleton is. All they hear about is Middleton's injury, so they don't really know how critically he is to the team, how big of a role he played in 2021. They have less than zero idea of how the CBA works. They think every athlete's overpaid. It was just a mess <laughs> top to bottom. I'm not sure what I expected clicking on the comment section. I know I probably shouldn't have, but there were a few people in there who seemed to understand what was happening, but 95%, not great. I have no problem with casual fans, by the way. We talked about this not on the podcast on the air when the Bucs were making their run in 2021. There are some diehards and I am a Bucks diehard. I have been there. I was there for the Dan Gadzarech era. I started in the Eric Murdoch, Todd Day era. I watched Marty Conlon be an important player on a team. You know, when you live through, especially with the Bucs, when you live through those decades of misery and then you finally get to a winning team and a once in a lifetime player. It doesn't happen most of the time, but it did happen for us. I don't know how or why this unicorn landed on Earth and became a part of the franchise that I have been living and dying with, mostly dying with, for 30-plus years. But when those things happen, sometimes the diehards will get upset at all of the casual fans and the bandwagon fans who don't really know what's going on, but they know enough about basketball and they want to be a part of something really fun and a title run is something that's really fun. I have no problem with bandwagon and casual fans. That's good. That's a sign that the team is good. What I do have a problem with are casual and bandwagon fans that don't really know much about basketball, don't know about the salaries, don't understand the CBA, don't follow the games closely enough to have a take on a player, and then spout those takes anyway. And I'll grant you, I am a diehard. I have many bad takes or wrong takes. But if you're just a casual fan, understand that. You have to know that. You're a casual bandwagon fan. Be there for the fun. By all means, celebrate, root, or get down on it when it's not going well, but... Some of the takes, man. Just just understand what you're understand what you don't know. All right, I'll fuck it off the high horse now. <laughs> no, I really I don't. I have no problem with casual bandwagon fans, but when they start to say some of the things that I saw being said about Chris Middleton, I mean people forget Chris Middleton, and I know you can't pay for nostalgia. We talked about that on Monday with possibly Trading Connaughton or Bobby Portis. People forget how important he was on that championship team during that run in 2020, Because some of the takes on Facebook after he opted out were, oh, good, get a real number two now. Are you kidding me? I wrote a list on the blog of all of the moments in the playoff run. You could argue not only was Chris Middleton a two, he was a 1B. And at times, especially when Giannis was hurt at the end of the Eastern Conference Finals, he was the A player. He was the number one guy. Hit the game winner against Miami in round one. In round two in that rock fight against the Nets when it was an 86-83 to final, and it was do or die, you lose that game, you're down 3-0, that series is over. He scored 35 points, and there were only 86 points total scored, and he pulled down 15 rebounds in that game. He scored almost 40 in a winner-go-home game six against Brooklyn. He hit the go-ahead shot in overtime in game seven in Brooklyn against Kevin Durant. In the Eastern Conference Finals, he went bananas in Game 3 in the fourth quarter to seal a win there and get home court back. Then when Giannis went down in the clinching Game 6, he went crazy in the third quarter, scored something like 21 points in a row to lead them to the NBA Finals. He dropped 40 in an NBA Finals game against the Suns. Jordan's only done that one other time. The list of people that have scored 40 points in NBA Finals game is short, and Middleton is on it. He was that important to that team. I think that was what was the most frustrating. I can understand fans, casual fans, being upset about signing a guy to a lot of money who did have and has had injury problems the past year. But to say go get a real number two, I mean, guys, he was a 1B on a title team. Wake up. People with those takes were just brain dead. He opts out of that $40 million contract on Wednesday. That was the deadline for that. But my assumption, like most Bucs fans and like most NBA observers or reporters, is that he will sign a long-term deal in Milwaukee. And the Bucs, as we discussed on Monday, have to do that. Whatever they can get. I mean, obviously, if you can make it a two- or three-year deal based on his age and the injury history of the past year, if you can get away with two years at 70 mil or three, I don't think you're going to do that three years at 110, 120, something like that, that would be ideal. The likelihood is that it's going to be a four or five-year deal in the 150, 160, 175 range. He could sign for up to, I think, 205 or 210. I don't envision it going that far, but they need to sign him because as we've gone over, and maybe as some casual fans don't quite get, if you don't sign Middleton, you don't have that money to spend on other people. Again, that's the take of go get a real number two. Well, first of all, Middleton, when he's healthy, is a real number two. And sometimes even better than that in tight games. But the other issue is, if you don't sign him, you don't have that money to sign anybody. If Middleton signs somewhere else, he walks out the door, and you get nothing. It is like the end of Willy Wonka. You'll get nothing, or that's <laughs> that's Caddyshack. You'll get nothing and like it. You lose, you get nothing. That's Willy Wonka. That's what's going to happen. That's the way the new CBA works. If they don't sign Middleton, it's not like they have $100 million or $150 million to go sign somebody else who could maybe be a number two. That money is gone, and you don't have Middleton. You don't have the asset that is his contract that you could maybe trade down the road. You get absolutely nothing. That's the bargaining advantage that Middleton has. Other teams out there, are they going to throw $200 million at him over five years? Probably not. But if the Bucs lowball him with a two year offer or a three year, $110 million option, and somebody else out there wants to take a risk on a guy on the backside of his prime that's done it in the playoffs and done it in the NBA finals, and they throw another year and another 30 mil on there because why not? Because they have the money and the Bucs don't. You can't risk that happening. That's why they likely have to offer him the four year deal for whatever it is, 150 or 160 right out of the gate. They cannot risk insulting him. And then some other team coming out of nowhere and adding a year and adding 35 mil. And then he walks and then you're sitting with nobody and you can't use that money on anybody else. That was the other big news that came on Wednesday. I expect that he is going to sign back in Milwaukee. 99.9% chance. My guess is that is done on June 30th. The new league year starts on July 1st. What day of the week is that? June 30th is a Friday. July 1st is a Saturday. My expectation is that by next Friday, we'll have a pretty good idea of what the contract is going to be and that Middleton will be back in Milwaukee. And even if he's unhealthy or if he's hurt during the course of the contract, let's say he comes back next year and he has sort of the year he had in 2023, like last year, 2022, where he's on and off the court. He can't stay out there consistently. He finally maybe gets close to healthy at the end of the year, but doesn't have his legs under him in the playoffs. I think that's what we saw a lot of in the Heat series. Even if it plays out like that, as frustrating as that would be, at least you have a contract that you can then sell down the road. You can trade him once he gets closer to expiring to a team rebuilding and then maybe they buy him out. You could trade him to a contender that thinks they can squeeze a little more juice out of the orange. You know what I mean? You you have options with that contract. I would expect in a week we'll have a much better vision of what the Middleton coming back to Milwaukee is going to look like. The other NBA news, Kristaps Porzingis to Boston. They had to give up Marcus Smart to get him. But they have guards. Derek White had pretty much passed smart by the time they got into the playoffs in the Eastern Conference Finals this year. If you're looking at Eastern Conference contenders, Boston was already there anyway, and they had Porzingis. Porzingis can score. He's not what he was when he was with the Knicks before the ACL injury. He's never quite fully gotten back to that, but he had some good years in Dallas. He was very good in Washington. He is not a good defender. Giannis will and can abuse him in the post. I'm not concerned about that, but he does add another scoring element to that team. And Chris Paul, who we talked about as maybe a guy who could end up in Milwaukee because they need that true point guard, he goes to Golden State. They do add that third team to the Wizards deal, and the Wizards deal, Paul, to Golden State. Golden State fans, I think they hate Chris Paul. Chris Paul has been their foil for this whole Warriors dynasty he was the guy that was knocking on the door the most. He was knocking on the door trying to knock them out in the playoffs when he was in L.A. with the Clippers. He was doing the same thing. He was up 3-1 when he was with James Harden in Houston. There's been some clashes there over the years, but it sounds like he is going there and he's going to stick. It's not like Golden State just going to buy him out. They're going to try to see how he fits into their offensive scheme. You would think Chris Paul is going to love it there. He can pass to anybody. Almost anybody can score. He's got two of the best shooters in the league in league history, one of them in Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson's numbers, I'm sure, are close to or comp to that. He's got guys he can facilitate to. He doesn't have to have the scoring burden on his shoulder. He's probably going to have a lot of open looks because of how good and Curry and Thompson and all those guys are. It's going to be intriguing to watch him in Golden State. I wish the Bucs would have had a shot at him, but – Having to add in as a third team in a deal was always going to be more far-fetched. The best situation for the Bucs would have been had the Wizards bought him out and then he could maybe sign on the – what is it? I can't think of the MLE, the exception line, or they could maybe sign him to the veterans minimum. But adding as a third team in a trade was always going to be tough for Milwaukee. So Chris Paul ends up in Golden State. All right, Brewer baseball. They wrap up the homestand on Wednesday – it's a good homestand. It's not a great homestand. A great homestand would have been a win on Wednesday. You go 5-1. and one. We were talking about that on the air on Wednesday. They had the opportunity for a great homestand. It was not great. It was good. 4-2. You sweep the Pirates. You lose the series against the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks are the second-best team in the NL. You see why. We talked about this on the air. Let me see if I can pull a box score up here. After that first game on Monday where Corbin Burns had his wheels fall off and they were down 6-0 before you could blink, before you even sat down with your nachos and your beer at AmFam Field, the Brewers were in a 6-0 hole on Monday. Just an absolute blow-up start by Corbin Burns, whose ERA is hovering around 4. I did have somebody text the station after that and ask if his trade value is going down. We've talked about Willie Adamas' trade value, what that might sit at come deadline time. The question was, is Burns hurting his trade value? I don't think so. I don't think there's really anything Burns could do that would hurt his trade value coming off of the last two years that he's had because teams will just bet on him getting a fresh start. Remember CC in 2008? When the Brewers got him, they had to give up a boatload to get CeCe. And CeCe was a former Cy Young winner, but at that time, at that juncture of the season in Cleveland, his ERA was around 4, he was 500. You were banking on him finding something in a new league and maybe being reinvigorated in a playoff chase, a wildcard chase, or a division chase. That's what you're betting on. You're betting on the pedigree, not what the most recent results are. So, I don't think he is going to hurt himself. He could have a five ERA or a six ERA probably. And I still think you get a ton of prospects if you do want to deal him. You click on that box score. They lose five to one or nine to one on Monday. And I looked at the box score the next day. Just compare the offenses. I don't know who half these people are for Arizona. A lot of these are newcomers or guys that I don't think even hardcore baseball fans are aware of. Just look at the batting averages <laughs> for the Diamondbacks per domo, 300. Kettle Marte, 287. Carroll, 304. Walker, 272. Lourdes Goriel Jr., 280. Rivera, 313. Moreno, 267. I mean, that's one through seven. They're all hitting between 280 and 310. Go over to the Brewers. Christian Yelich, 272. Jesse Winker, 197. Willie Adamas, 202. Rowdy Telez, 225. Tapia, 237. Anderson, 220. I mean, you just compare the two offenses. It seems like the Diamondbacks just have a better approach or guys that are more locked in maybe. They're taking pitches. They're hitting pitches in the zone with power to all fields. You just compare the average. I thought, my God. So the Brewers lose that one 9-1. Great bounce back win on Tuesday, having to come back from a 4-0 deficit. They were again in an early hole. They battled back from that. Yelly had the RBI ground out. Contreras, the go-ahead 2-RBI double. They win that game 7-5. Another win in a game where Colin Ray starts. And then on Wednesday, Tehran on the Hill, Julio Tehran. What a revelation. We've talked about Devin Williams is the likely all-star for the Brewers. Maybe Yelly's getting in on that conversation. If Julio Tehran has three more starts like we've seen so far, he might be in the conversation. Five shutout innings on Wednesday. His ERA is 1.55 in six starts. Remarkably, in his six starts, remarkable is the word, Right. In his six starts, the six games that he's taken the mound with a 1.55 ERA, the Brewers are two and four. They just have not been able to win when he's on the mound, by no fault of his own. And it happened again on Wednesday. They got the one-nothing we lead when Tapia went yard on Gallon. At that point, you kind of thought, okay, you gotta win this game one-nothing. You're not gonna get any more off of Gallen. Zach Gallon is one of the best pitchers in baseball. He'll be on the short list for Cy Young again this year, like he was last year. You got the one and thought, if the bullpen can take it home from here, that's the way you're going to win this game. They immediately give up the lead. Pagaro, who's been good. I mean, it's hard to get mad at some of these guys, these late-inning guys that have been good most of the year, and they're having little hiccups here and there. Pagaro had an ERA of, what, 2-7 going into Wednesday? He gives up two runs. You're down 2-1. They add tack on runs, 5-1, just not going to come back from that. Lose the series on Wednesday, but Julio Tehran, the very clear silver lining in that game, with the loss, they're 38 and 36 heading into play tonight after a day off on Thursday. The Reds are a freight train right now. They've won 11 games in a row. They sweep the Rockies. Their schedule gets more difficult. They have, I think, Atlanta tonight. Let me just see what their schedule looks like. They are going to play better competition here up until the All Star break. Yeah, they've got three at home against Atlanta. Then they go to Baltimore. Then they've got San Diego at Washington before wrapping up the first half in Milwaukee at AmFam Field, and then starting with Milwaukee in Cincinnati after the All-Star break. This 10-game trip the Brewers are about to embark on, I'm not saying it's going to be make or break. I do think we're in the beginning now of what we talked about on Friday one week ago where we said they've got about 30 days. They've got about 30 games here to bleep or get off the pot to kind of figure out where they're going to be in terms of sellers or buyers at the trade deadline, and they're 4-2 and in that stretch. They swept the Pirates and then win one out of three against the Diamondbacks. But 30 days-ish from last Friday is going to determine the year. And, yeah, this 10-game trip is going to play a big role in that. You're in Cleveland for three. You've got to take on Shane Bieber right out of the gate. You've got this offense for the Brewers that is scuffling again And it feels like you're just running into former Cy Young award winner after former Cy Young award winner or Cy Young candidate, Zach Allen on Wednesday. Shane Bieber, who won the Cy Young a few years ago for the then Indians, now Guardians. He's on the hill tonight. The way the Brewers are hitting, I don't think that they could score runs off of Justin Bieber, the way things are going right now. But Shane Bieber on the hill tonight. That's the first of three in Cleveland. Better pitching matchups on Saturday and Sunday. Then you've got to go to four in New York where they have not played well. The Mets have not played well, but you know they're going to try to get back on track. And, of course, you've got Verlander right out of the gate there. And then you end the trip with three in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is pittsburgh We thought this would happen at some point. We've talked about this all year. At some point, the Pirates are going to pirate, and it feels like they're pirating. They got swept by the Cubs. After they got swept by the Brewers, they're sinking quickly in the NL Central. And the Cubs are kind of rising now, too. They're only two games behind the Brewers for second place. But the Reds have been about as good as it gets in baseball for the time being. They've won 11 in a row. They've got all their prospects they're calling up. They have a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of energy right now. But this 10-game trip, and then I really think if you can keep your head above water on this trip, if you can go 5-5 five and five on this 10-game trip and then come back with a home series against the Cubs and then a home series against the Reds before the All-Star break, if the Reds stay hot, and that is going to be one of your chief competitors in the NL Central That three-game set before the All-Star break and the three-game set in Cincy out of the All-Star break, how you do there if you can keep your head above water on this road trip, that six-game swing before and after the All-Star break could go a long way to determining what this team is going to look like and what their approach is going to become trade deadline time. But they get it cranked up tonight. Wade Miley takes on Bieber. Hopefully Miley can hang in there. Freddie Peralta on the hill on Saturday afternoon, 3-10, Sunday, 12-40 with Corbin Burns on the mound for the Brewers. Some bad news from Triple A. Sal Freilich. He just got back. He's your number two prospect. The team is scuffling to score runs. You figured Freilich was going to get a call-up soon, and he only played two or three games since returning from his injury, and he was already hitting doubles and hitting triples. And you thought, with how bad it's been, it's only a matter of time until Fralick gets called up. Well, guess what happened to Triple A on Thursday? He hits a ball off of his kneecap and he leaves the game. Of course, there's speculation on Twitter that this is similar to the Yelich injury with the broken kneecap or what Darren Ruff just went through for the Brewers. He has his injury happened defensively, not offensively. Let's hope that's not the case. But that's sort of the way the year has gone for the Brewers, where you just get this guy back. Maybe he can help you at the major league level. He's your number two prospect in the minor leagues. And right when you're probably going to make that call, either before this series in Cleveland or if you continue to struggle, likely to call him up at some point on this road trip, of course. Of course he leaves with injury. Hopefully it's not major. It doesn't sound good, but that happened in Nashville last night. You might see Keston. Keston continues to rake. He is back. He hit another home run. In the numbers, the OPS is over 900 at the A level. We've seen that before. How optimistic are you that this time, this time it's going to translate. It's like a relationship that you keep going back to two or three times. This time is going to be the time it works, three months later. Nope, didn't work this time either. But this team is so starved for anything offensively. You've got to give him a shot. He'll get a couple more games at the A level. If Keston keeps hitting and he stays healthy, I would imagine you're going to see him up as a DH or a first baseman before this road trip ends or maybe right when the road trip ends if you're still not scoring runs by the time you get home on July 3rd. But that's another option maybe right now at the AAA level. All right, Travelers Championship. You knew I, w- we knew that I was going to do this. I talked about this on Monday. We've had so much success betting on golf this year. We cashed the ROM ticket at the Masters. We cashed Rory top ten at the PGA Championship. We cashed the three tickets at the Open, on um, the U.S. Open this past weekend. I forget what they even are now. We had Hovland top twenty. We had Scheffler top ten. We had Rory top ten. We cashed all three of those, even though we lost the ROM bet. Maybe we're good at golf. We're going to find out. I'm going to put it to the test. The only way you find out if you're a good golf better is to bet on more golf. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to keep on betting until the wheels fall off, which they almost always do. But at the Travelers Championship, we have Victor Hovland to win. Right now he's 6-under, I believe. Leaders at 10 under. We have Hovland to win at plus 1900. We have Scheffler top 20 at minus 200. Not a great payday there if he hits, but it will be money if he gets there. I would think he's going to finish top 20. And we've got Tommy Fleetwood in the top 22. He's been near the top of every leaderboard in the last month or so, or two months. That's what we're going with for the Travelers Championship underway right now. Hovland to win, Scotty Schepler top 20, Tommy Fleetwood top 20. And then we've got to end the podcast on Aaron Rodgers in a moment of, no, this was not a headline from The Onion. (laughs) Aaron Rodgers talking at a hallucinogenic conference. I saw that posted maybe on Wednesday or Thursday on social media, and I just had to do a double take. I followed The Onion. I thought this has to be... An Onion headline, it is not. And apparently he did a podcast on it. He just sounds like a crazy... Oh, he sounds like the animal the house... The solar system could be like one tiny atom in the fingernail of some other giant being. That animal house getting high scene, that's what Aaron Rodgers is right now. One of the quotes he had from this podcast or from this hallucinogenic conference was, quote, You know, Roger said, quote, Words are so interesting. They have such power in their spells. That's a reason it's called spelling, because the way the letters are put together have such power. Is this guy for real? (laughs) I hope at some point we find out that this was all just a massive troll job by Aaron Rodgers the last four or five years of random Rodgers quotes. How is that quote from a real person saying real things? All right, good luck, New York. (laughs) Have, Have fun with him out in New York. Aaron Rodgers at a hallucinogenic conference. It makes sense. Perfect fit. That'll do it for us here on your Friday. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll get back after it on Monday, hopefully talking about a Brewers Series win. Break down any Chris Middleton news. Again, there's about a one-week window there where they're going to be able to sign him. If he gets past July 1st and they haven't worked out anything, then you start to get a little concerned maybe that he's going to be out there too long and someone's going to make a move for him. We'll talk about that. We'll recap the Travelers Championship, see if we cashed any more golf tickets on Monday morning. We'll chat with you then.